Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Yisker sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. What do you say and what do you do when you bury the last of a generation? When we buried Henry Golub, the crowd gathered around the grave was small but mighty. At 81, he had no descendants, no life partner to speak of. Instead, the funeral was arranged by his doting nieces and nephews and their families. They faced this death, the loss of Henny, as he had been known to them, with solemnity and with brokenheartedness. He was the last of their parents' siblings to pass. They asked me, what's the ritual that we do when the last of a generation dies? I told them, I truly don't know. I'll explore a bit and see if I find any rituals for such an occasion. I like to think of myself as working my way to a black belt in ritual, and I was sure I'd find something, but I didn't. As we stood in the plain office of the mortuary, a few of the nieces and nephews pinned Kriya ribbons onto their chests. As I watched them delicately affix these ritual objects to their lapels, I thought about the tenderness of this gesture towards their uncle's legacy. It was an extension of the care that they had shown to him in his lifetime, ensuring that he was cared for until his last breath. Now in the immediate aftermath of his death, they would take on the yoke of mourning for their beloved relative. And they did so as a free will offering, a fully non-obligatory commitment to the dignity of the deceased. It made me think in a classic moment of transference of my own relationships with my aunts and my uncles. This loving kindness towards Henny, even and especially in death, was beautiful to behold. Our rabbinic canon and subsequent legal codes address this notion of a decedent without an adult male son. The medieval conception of someone who was obligated in saying Kaddish for them. Rav Eliezer Malamed, who's a student of Rav Kook and a modern Israeli Rosh Yeshiva, presents the chain as such that if there isn't a living child of the deceased who is generally obligated in Kaddish, the family should then pay a God-fearing stranger to say Kaddish. He's quick to add that if there is a real ben or bat Torah in the family, they are preferred to a stranger. I thought often in the past few weeks and throughout the High Holy Day season about the idea of a relative who volunteers themselves to say Kaddish on behalf of their loved one. This year was one in which it was uh, particularly fortunate that I heard Rabbi Kligfeld's Yom Kippur Drash twice, as I often do, which was a discourse on chosen suffering. As I considered the role of this hormesis in Jewish life cycle, this self-induced pain, I circled back to the mental image of nieces and nephews pinning their grief to their chest. What is voluntary commitment to Kaddish after all? 
but a form of chosen suffering. I preach about the wisdom of the Jewish structured response to death to all who will listen. Introduction to Judaism classes, my Ziegler rabbinical students, families who are grappling with the news of a death. Kriya, Shiva, Shloshim for the month after the death, Yartzeit. My appreciation of these fixtures only grows as I watch people step off of the conveyor belt of life and work, sitting still in their loss, however painful or complicated. Chosen grief in Judaism is what happens when somebody righteously and lovingly reappropriates these obligations as nidavot, as offerings of the heart. Choosing grief is to elevate lived experience over the fixed categories of loved ones. Someone we love dearly is gone, and we reckon with that absence through the rituals that we know to be authentic and impactful. So many of us know from this chosen grief, the emotional and spiritual journey we undertake in response to a death outside the circle of seven, parent, partner, child, sibling, we mourn for these others. In life, they were our uncles, our non-Jewish parents, our chosen parents, our best friends. In the Yisker service, they are the others, the ones we held dear and now hold dear side by side with those who are bound by our tradition to recite memorial prayers. Volunteering oneself as a, as a mourner is virtuous. It's also complicated. Whenever we try to carry out rich, Jewish ritual, without the force of obligation, there's a softening of its impactfulness. This shows up all over the place as society, for example, reimagines the role of women in many spaces. Baby namings as a ceremony for Jewish girls have only existed, for example, for the past 50 years. I vividly recall Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky in the context of teaching our Life Cycles course at seminary, in which he said that it will feel impossible, it will feel impossible to give the same kind of weight to a baby naming that's just a baby naming as we lend to a Brit Milah, to a bris. He said it was about the blood and bodily alteration. And I don't entirely disagree, and I did unsuccessfully petition my husband that we pierce our daughter's ears at her breed bot. But he's also right, Rabbi Kamenovsky, in that the obligation of bris will always feel more weighty than the giving of a Hebrew name when it's just that. This dynamic is only amplified in the world of saying Kaddish, which was restricted to male heirs up and through much of the 20th century. Greta Wiener, who's a sociologist who lost her father back in the 70s, shared a personal essay about her experiences alongside her sister in seeking to say Kaddish. As Greta wrote in Lilith magazine, Besides the discomfort of navigating women's sections at Minyanim, where their Kaddish recitation was at best resented, was the awful sense that she and her sister were saying Kaddish gratuitously. It didn't count, not in the same way, and it was voluntary anyway, 
In other words, it was just chosen grief. One way to address this caveat is to frame the memorial prayer as a tool for redeeming the deceased and redeeming death itself. In his book, Living a Year of Kaddish, Ari Goldman writes, the Kaddish is a tool for the living to meet God with ultimate acceptance. We cannot bring back the dead, he writes, but we can redeem death. And if Kaddish is truly a spiritual device that is affixed to the soul of the departed, well then, the obligation is rooted in the deceased, and there's less importance assigned to who is reciting Kaddish for them. The widespread halachot and customs around Kaddish arise from the medieval understanding that when Kaddish was recited, the departed are shielded from divine punishment. So we say these Aramaic words, yitkadal v'yitkadash, to invoke divine leniency and elevate the souls of the departed. Kaddish is for the dead, no matter who chooses to recite it. It may once have been that Kaddish was a gift mostly to the deceased, but our generation is witness to almost a full inversion of this idea. There is a moment at a Jewish burial, many of you might recall this, when we pivot our attention from the mitzvah of kvod hamet, the dignity of the deceased, to michum avelim, comforting the mourners. The very first act of comfort is our amen to the recitation of mourners' kaddish for the individual we just buried. That very first recitation. Kaddish is very much today for the mourners. It is an act of incantation. Though we may hardly know the meaning of the Aramaic, the very exact formula of Kaddish comforts as if we have properly conjured the very first sparks of consolation from the universe. Nearly 25 years ago, a rabbi emeritus, Rabbi Joel Rembaum, brought a rabbinic responsum to the law committee offering an answer to this query. Does a Jew who converted say Kaddish for their non-Jewish parents or relatives? His tshuva in response was to obligate the mourners in Kaddish and the balance of Jewish mourning customs. Rabbi Rembaum writes that this conclusion is intended to grant the mourners the traditional Jewish structures of mourning. The response concludes that converts are required, obligated, to perform all the mourning rites. I see in this response a meta-principle that gifts the mourner who converted something beyond permission to choose grief. Even more so, it gives the gift of obligation, which in turn authenticates the grief of the living. I never did find a Jewish ritual for the last death of a generation. So together with Henny's family, we created one. As a last act of burial, one of the nieces stepped forward to complete seven final shovelfuls of dirt, one for each of the siblings now gone. And together we recited the piece of liturgy, Lidor Vador Nagid Godlecha. From generation to generation, we will extol not only your glory as in God's glory, but also the glory 
of the generation now gone. I had the privilege of witnessing these loving relatives grasping tight to their shovels, holding close to their memories of a sweet uncle, choosing grief. It's no accident that Rabbi Rembam fostered a community that shows up in extraordinary ways for mourners of all stripes. We as a community have the power to authenticate grief when we comfort without discrimination. For those who choose grief from a place of love and earnestness, we promise you the same unnecessarily heaping portions of kugel as we do to any other mourner. You have chosen grief, chosen to honor your loved ones. And for that, we choose to honor you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.